There we are. <clears throat> oh, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Sorry, there we are. Uh, obviously, uh, we need to talk about finches. There are certain experiments in the world of evolutionary biology that are famous, at least amongst biologists. One such experiment involved trying to determine in advance what characteristics of male finches would determine reproductive success. Because, of course, not all male finches survive. And of those that do, not all will survive to breed. So then, of large numbers of finches in aviaries and of all of the males therein, which ones would the females prefer? And why? Leading to those select males having more mating success than the less preferred males. Well, uh, various characteristics were predicted to be linked to success. Maybe it would be size, strength, vigor, um, activity, glossiness, plumage condition, etc., etc. But there turned out to be one overwhelming variable that explained more variation than any other variable. It turned out that the key characteristic, the key to success, if you were a male finch, was the little plastic-coloured band that the biologist had stuck on your leg in order that they could see who was who. Girl finches like their men finches wearing jewellery. <laughs> the flashier, the better. Breeding success was determined by little plastic-coloured bands. Bling was the thing. And in actual fact, what you can see on the screen on the left-hand side, there's a female sitting next to two males. And the male immediately uh, um, on, on one side of her is wearing a little red plastic band, and he looks very pleased with himself. Well, maybe that, that's just me, but there you have it. Red ones were particularly, success, were particularly sexy. I'll explain the relevance of this story a little bit later on in the sermon. Because today we're looking at something called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And as you may already know, we're doing a series on doctrine. I'm teaching doctrine rather than teaching the Bible, which is my usual occupation. But one aim for this series is to help us all understand the importance of doctrine. That actually it's quite important. The nature of doctrine as well. What it is, how it works, and the limitations of doctrine. The boundaries of its usefulness. What it's there for. Now in our context today, the word saints means God's holy people. Christians. Us. We're not talking about Saint Isidore, for example, the patron saint of laborers, farm workers, and all those who toil. Uh, no, uh, we're actually going to be thinking about a theological question or perhaps a set of related questions that's actually very important to us. These questions are those questions that arise 
when we see people fall away from the Christian faith, when we encounter, when we see people stop following Jesus? What what, what does that mean? Will will they be saved in the end? Were, Were they ever saved? How can we know? Will I fall away? Will will Christ disown me on the day of judgment? How can I know? Well, there are very considerable anxieties attached to these questions. Christian parents, for example, are tremendously anxious for the spiritual welfare of their children, that they might know the love of Christ always, and abiding in him, walking with him at last, enter the kingdom of heaven. The the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is about trying to work out what it means that some Christians stop being Christian. Formally, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints says that, firstly, all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that, therefore, secondly, those who don't persevere as Christians until the end of their lives were never truly born again. As you can see, a key idea in this doctrine is a related doctrine, the idea of being born again. And we looked at this doctrine, the doctrine of regeneration, about six weeks ago. That is the idea, the idea of regeneration, the idea of being born again. is the idea that in order to believe in Jesus, God the Father gives us a spiritual new birth, a regeneration through God the Holy Spirit so that we are able to believe. We are born again. So let's look at the first part of this argument. One, all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And it does seem that this idea is plainly taught in various places in Scripture. As we've uh, already heard this morning from Naomi, uh, John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. And again, John chapter 10. My sheep listen to my voice, Jesus says. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, 
who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And uh, we uh, frequently find in the Gospels and the epistles of John uh, phrases along the lines of, everyone who believes in the Son has eternal life. Some theologians argue that you cannot have eternal life temporarily. If you have it now, you have it always. A creature could have immortality, hypothetically speaking, the ability to live on and on unendingly. A creature could have immortality and then lose that ability. But that is not the claim of the gospel. The gospel teaches us that in Christ we have the gift of eternal life. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul celebrates a gospel of extraordinary security. Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And a little bit later, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Second uh, Corinthians and also in the book of Ephesians, Paul also talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And Uh, In Greek, as in English, the word guarantee is a legal commercial term, meaning a binding obligation. Thus the saying, once saved, always saved, would seem to be very true, biblically speaking. For God's purpose in saving us is to save us forever. Getting back to our doctrinal statement, all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. Well, if that is true, and it does seem to be true, then the flip side must logically also be true. Those who don't persevere as Christians until the end of their lives were never truly born again. However, this idea, this doctrine, that those who fall away never had real saving faith, this idea finds little support in Scripture. In fact, it has no direct support. There's no text that clearly says that. However, perhaps it could be inferred from two texts Uh, One of them comes from Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, 
No, I'm sorry, it's, it's been a very long time since we last caught up. Or you answered none of my emails, but you used to. Um, or I knew you once, but then you strayed. No, no, actually he says, I never knew you. It would seem as though these people were never walking in the trusting, faithful obedience of the saved, even though it certainly looked like they were, and they thought they were, only Jesus knew that they weren't. As a second line of evidence, there's Judas Iscariot. Judas, as an example of a false disciple, was indistinguishable from the other disciples to the other disciples. When Jesus said that one of his disciples would betray him, none of them could guess which one he meant. And one after the other, they all said, is it me? But not only did Jesus know which one it was, but indeed he'd always known which one it was. Um, There are other texts that theologians point to as evidence for this second idea, that those who fall away were never saved in the first place. But there's a lot of disagreement. For myself, just for myself, my own conclusion is this. Idea one, all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. Yes, Scripture seems to teach that. It seems to say it clearly. Idea two, those who don't persevere as Christians until the end of their lives were never truly born again. I I don't think Scripture teaches that. It doesn't say it clearly. It may or may not actually be right. No one can categorically say that the Bible teaches this. It may not get a big cross, but I certainly can't give it a big tick. This is confusing. If you feel confused, don't worry, it is confusing. If idea one is correct, surely idea two has to be correct as well. So why won't the Bible be good and just say it? Well, this is the reason. We're trying to impose on Scripture our own agenda. And it won't bend because it already has its own agenda. With respect to all of the Scriptures I quoted in support of Idea 1, none of them in context were intentionally teaching once saved, always saved. That was never their intention. In some of those texts, the intention was that we might, we might see in full view the full sovereignty of God in the salvation process. God will save whom he will save. He's totally sovereign. It's his decision. In his own words, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And you can find those in Exodus 33 and in Romans 9. In others of the texts that we looked at, what was in view was the full divinity of Jesus as God with us. Jesus in the divine office of Savior, together with his Father, is totally sovereign over the salvation process. He is completely in power. Nothing can snatch out of his hand that which is in his hand. 
And in other texts, what was in view was the total dependability of God as Savior, as, of, of Christ as Savior, as merciful and compassionate. He will never, ever, he will never, ever condemn those who take refuge in him. As long as we continue to trust and to depend upon his grace, his mercy and saving forgiveness, the forgiving and life-giving power of the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ, we're safe when we run to him as our rock of refuge. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> So then, what we also find in Scripture is that this, this power of God, this power of God that will keep us safe, what we find is that actually we apply that power through faith. Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time through faith, are shielded by God's power. The phrase is noteworthy because it seems to give us a mechanism. Sure, it is God's power that guards us, but we apply it by faith. Faith as an active thing in which we keep on choosing to trust God and to believe in Jesus. We are shielded by God, but that shield is an effective shield when we grasp it in faith. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And elsewhere, he who endures to the end will be saved. And Paul, Colossians chapter 1, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, through death, to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Similarly, Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Thus, the New Testament, in exhorting Christians to carry on in the Christian life, exhorts them to continue in faith by faith. We, we also know from Scripture that, that in this, our prayers for each other are powerful and effective. Jesus, we see it in the Gospels, and now, right now in heaven, Jesus is answering Prayers and petitions for grace, for mercy, for clemency towards others, for his saving work to go further and broader and deeper. But we can now also see that the phrase, once saved, always saved, is not helpful. It might still be true, but it is 
not helpful. Imagine this scenario. A person comes to me and says, Oh, Stephen, I can see that you are a prophet and that no mystery is too hard for you. Tell me, which horse will win the Melbourne Cup? And I answer, Ah, yes, I know the answer to that question. The horse that will win the Melbourne Cup will be the winning horse. Of course, God wants the winning horse to win, and we'll know that the horse that is God's choice will win by the fact that it does win. What I've said is quite true and accurate. It's a perfectly good reply. I've answered the question. But my answer, although true, is useless. Because I've used a circular argument. Circular arguments are not necessarily wrong. In fact, they can be quite true. But their usefulness is limited by the fact that they don't tell you anything that you didn't already know. Back to those finches. Deep inside the theory of evolution, there is a circular argument. It is a circular argument that circles around the concept of survival of the fittest. Now, in order to be fair, and as many of you will already know, Charles Darwin never used the phrase survival of the fittest in connection with his theory of evolution. The phrase was coined and used by a man named Thomas Huxley. But the idea of natural selection goes like this. With respect to each new generation, who will survive to breed? Answer, the fittest. How do you define who the fittest are? They are the ones who survive to breed. As far as I know, when biologists study natural selection, there has never been a single case where the biologists were able to predict in advance which characteristics would lead to survival and breeding success. Turns out that actually the race is not always to the fastest, nor the battle to the strongest, nor success to the smartest. Who are those who survive to breed? The fittest. How do we define who the fittest are? They are the ones who survive to breed. So when we, and when Moses, and when Paul, when when, when we confront God and we say, what does our salvation look like? Whom will you save? Where are the boundaries of your grace? God says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Very politely, mind your own business. The statement is circular. It doesn't mean it's untrue. In fact, it is perfectly true. But actually, it never answered the question. So finally, back to the doctrine itself. All those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their life. And therefore also, secondly, those who don't persevere as Christians until the end of their lives were never truly born again. 
the doctrine is untestable because it is circular. It's a circular argument. I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm saying that it's untestable. We actually can't know. It's not entirely useless. It's just mostly useless. And yet, in examining this doctrine, I, I hope you agree, it has not been a complete waste of time. It has once again compelled us to run to the Word of God in order to see what it says. So then, what about all those people? I'm not sure about you, but for me, what, what about all those people who I know who used to walk with the Lord but no longer do? That they, they fell away. Will they be saved in the end? It's none of my business. Were they ever saved? That's not a question I can answer. How can we know? We can't. What about our children? Which ones will survive to breed and have families of their own? We can't possibly know. Which ones of our children will grow up to, to love Jesus and serve him all their days? Which ones will at last enter the kingdom of God? Well, this is the answer. The Lord says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. We just have to simply trust that he is good and that he knows what he's doing. Will I fall away? Will Christ disown me on the day of judgment? How can I know? Well, again, we know that our Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We know that he hears our prayers for others. And we know that he loves to save. We know that we can depend upon him for grace. For, of course, there is no other real choice. Depending upon him for grace as we abide in him. Let us pray.